Welcome to Conversations with Mayu Lenz. That's me. I'm your host, a photographer obsessed with helping women lead unapologetically. On this show, you will hear not only from me, but from other amazing women who inspire me and are making a difference in the community. What does that mean, leading unapologetically? To me, it's leading from a place of authenticity without apologies. In other words, not seeking approval for being yourself, what you care for, and value. My goal with this podcast is to inspire and help women develop powerful confidence in themselves and recognize the value we bring to the community and the world as a whole. Whether you are a stay-at-home mom, entrepreneur, pursuing a career, or growing your business, we are here to build each other up. We are bilingual speakers and want to bring value to both the English and Spanish-speaking communities. Some shows will have a Spanish label when we have a Spanish-only speaking guest. Let's learn and grow together. My guest today is Elizabeth Myers. She's an Air Force Academy graduate, the wife of a full afterburner fighter pilot, and the mother of eight energetic children. As a motivational speaker and Bible teacher, Elizabeth enjoys expressing theological concepts through relatable metaphors that enhance personal understanding of big ideas for ordinary people. Her struggles with depression, grief, anxiety, and her anger towards God has led her to compassionately speak to the pain, doubt, and frustrations of others wherever they are in their journey. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a delight to be here. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? What are you up to these days? Because you have eight children and yeah. your house must be like a fun party all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. I have a sign in our living room that says some call it chaos. We call it family. And that pretty much sums us up. Uh, we're, we've been a military family. So I say we move a lot. We eat a lot. We make a lot of messes. We're a noisy bunch, but we also have a lot of fun. Um, so our two oldest have grown and flown the coop. So I say we only have six at home. Oh. And um, we're, I'm homeschooling the younger ones. My husband's just recently, he's in the process of retiring from the Air Force. So after 30 years of living that life, now we have settled out in a rural area in Texas. And so we're raising chickens and sheep and all the things. And it's <laughs> just been one crazy thing after another. So we're really loving it and enjoying it. And, you know, just we've had a great adventure for the first 25 years of our marriage. And we're looking forward to this next adventure, which is very different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, recently I had a guest on the podcast that lost um, her child due to childhood cancer. Mm. When I asked her what advice will she give a grieving mother uh, that just don't know how to or where to find the support that she needs. One of the things that she mentioned was to find a support group or a Facebook group that was mm -hmm. specific, like that she found a specific one for mothers who lost their child to um, cancer. And mm -hmm. then she said, and I had um, other mothers go with, um, they lost their child to pregnancy. And it mm -hmm. hit me, I was that same day, I had a conversation with you about, mm -hmm. you know, being the guest on the podcast. And you mentioned the loss of your son. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I can relate to you, but mm -hmm. I couldn't relate to her. And it was mm -hmm. like, it, it's almost the same pain because we, mm -hmm. we lost a child. 
but I just couldn't imagine um, losing my children, you know, mm -hmm. due to cancer. That's horrific. My sister uh, passed away due to leukemia. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, your experience losing your son? Yes, I was just really unprepared to deal with it. And I think our culture in general doesn't really know how to grieve the loss of a child that wasn't born. Um, I felt very alone because he was so real to me, but to other people, you know, it, it was like he had not existed in their minds because he hadn't been born yet. And um, I was only in the second trimester. So mm. I just really struggled. I got stuck in a place of grief because I, I couldn't really work through that. I didn't know how. And um, because he was under 20 weeks, uh, medically speaking, they didn't really even consider him human at all. Mm. They, we, we, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> he was unexpectedly stillborn at my parents' house while we were on vacation. Oh. Uh, so I had like no warning signs, no doctor involvement. It's just his body was born and he was clearly already gone. And, you know, then it was only after that, that I, I started bleeding and having other complications myself. So we went to the hospital, to the ER, you know, and took his, his little tiny body in there with us, you know, we fit in the palm of my hand, mm -hmm. very clearly in every way, a human being, but, um, the, the doctors and the nurses just refused to acknowledge his life and refused to acknowledge that he was in fact a baby. And because he was under a certain age and a certain weight, you know, they wouldn't issue a death certificate. They would not allow me to have his body back. So I was not allowed to bury him or to have any kind of memorial service like that. They said to, you know, go home and plant a tree to remember your son by. I'm like, we're military, we move. I, I can't plant a tree where I'm, I'm leaving next year, you know? Um, so I just really got stuck in that place because I didn't know how to move through it. You know, all the normal things that we do to kind of process grief, you know, to have a memorial service or a funeral to, to get with your friends and, you know, they, they weep with you and have, have sympathy or to remember that person's life. You know, I had none of that. I had no pictures of him. I had no happy memories of, you know, I just, it was just really, really hard. And so that was difficult for me to navigate that territory without really having a guide. I had nobody else to look to, to go, how do I do this? And I, I agree with you and with, with your previous guest about, you know, finding that place to plug into with someone who has, you know, a similar type of grief that you're carrying. The closest I could get to that at the time um, was I subscribed to a newsletter of a, mm. a group that was actually out in Dallas. And they didn't have like a local chapter where I was of, of women who had lost babies in pregnancy or, or right after birth. Um, but through their newsletters, I kind of participated vicariously in that group, <laughs> but it would have been so much better to have that real interaction. Yes. Um, at the time I was on a homeschooling forum online and they had different groups, you know, for parents with special needs, or if you need math help, you know, you go here. And so one of them was, it was actually titled the group that nobody wants to be a part of. And it was for parents mm -hmm. who had lost children, whose children had died. And they specifically made a, a you know, a bold claim on there. If this is only for parents who have lost children that were born first, this is not for parents who have lost children in pregnancy. That was their stipulation. Mm -hmm. And for, for whatever reason, the way the group was set up, I could read their posts, but I couldn't respond to anything or I couldn't oh, wow. post myself because I wasn't a part of the group. And so ironically, it was labeled the group nobody wants to be a part of, but I would have loved to have been a part of that group because as I read what they were dealing with, I'm like, 
I feel that way too. Yeah. You know, just because my baby was younger than yours doesn't mean it hurts less. Yes. Um, so that was just really hard for, I mean, grieving a child is hard anyway, but then you add on this other layer of complication and then also just dealing with the trauma of the way it happened. You know, anytime a child dies is, is not a good situation, but uh, you know, the actual traumatic event of that experience, just, I kept reliving it over and over and over, you know, I just kind of had PTSD as well. So there were compounding factors um, that just made it hard for me to get out of that spot. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's crazy um, how you can be included, but excluded at the same time. I know. <laughs> I, know. It was, I don't know why I could read their posts if I couldn't be in the group. It was a strange setup. What, um, what would you tell someone dealing with depression after the loss of a child? Because seeing someone drowning in depression is really hard. How, how can they seek help? Sometimes it's hard to recognize it. I, you know, after I had gone through this experience, then looking back in the past, I realized, oh, I had been depressed before, but I didn't recognize it. I had had right. postpartum depression after my first child and it just kind of wore off after a while, you know, and I felt better. But in, in this case, it was, I was stuck. It was not improving with time. And my question I kept asking myself is when does grief, you know, healthy grief cross over into depression? You know, when, like how long are you supposed to grieve before you quote move on? You know, which right. I, I don't really like that. You kind of move <laughs> through things, but it's not to me. I felt like if I moved on, then that was forgetting my son right. because to other people, you know, he didn't really seem to exist anyway. I have no pictures of him. You know, people would say, how many children do you have? And I was torn up about how do I answer that question? I, I never ask women that question anymore. If they say something about their kids, then I say, oh, well, what ages are your kids? And that's how I get there. If they haven't said anything about kids, I don't ask them because I don't, <laughs> it could be such a painful question, you know, for yes. maybe a, a mom who's, who's lost children and doesn't have a living one yet, or someone who's trying to get pregnant and isn't. And anyway, I, I went off on a, a tangent there. <laughs> um, but so I think identifying that you're struggling with depression is a big thing first. And then secondly, just like you said, getting help. I struggled. It, it was mostly because of pride, honestly. Um, you know, I didn't want to admit that I had a problem and, you know, being, I, I have the Christian faith and in, in my mind, I thought, well, Christians are supposed to be joyful and peaceful all the time. And here um, I am depressed and anxious and what's wrong with me. And why does God hate me? You know, I, I struggled with these questions of my faith of like, where is God in the midst of all of this? And I just didn't know what to do with it. And so I lived with that untreated depression for five years before I finally felt so bad that I'm like, I've got to do something. <laughs> and I, I went and got help. And for me, you know, I couldn't really tell what the root cause was, you know, was it physical health problems that were making me feel bad emotionally and mentally, or, or was I depressed? And that was why I felt so exhausted all the time, or, you know, was all these were, was it all a spiritual problem because I was really angry at God for taking away my baby. And, you know, maybe that was causing all this stuff. So I just tried to take baby steps to move forward in all those areas, physically, spiritually, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. I just tried to say, what's my next best baby step here. And yeah. so there was no dramatic recovery, but over time, I began to see improvement and that's when I began to realize how integrated all these things are. We try to separate them and say, mm. well, you know, spiritual thing is over here and physical thing is over here and mental health is over here. And they're not, they're so closely related to one another. That's what I learned through this experience. But um, I, 
I would just encourage people to get help sooner, as soon as possible. I, um, about a week, maybe, maybe less after I started taking an antidepressant, I was, uh, playing with my toddler. She was in her high chair and I was playing with her. And I really, I mean, just all of a sudden, like it just this realization of I'm not faking it. Like I actually feel playful. And that is when I realized the cost that had happened because I waited so long for her entire mm. life. I had been depressed. I had played with her because I knew that's what a good mom should do, but I never felt like it. Right. And it, you know, it took that jolt to wake me up, to get me, you know, I, I needed the medication to get to that place where I could do the other things I needed to do to take care of myself and to care about myself. Um, and then that also leads me to a third thing is self-care is so important, you know, especially uh, I think as moms in general or women in general, just take care of everybody else <laughs> and put ourselves and last. last. Yeah. yeah. And so that was huge for me to learn that it's not selfish to take care of myself and that it's necessary if I'm going to be the wife and the mother and the friend and the daughter and the writer and everything that I want to be, that God's called me to be, that I, I need to take care of myself first. I need to put on, just like on the airplane, you put on your own oxygen mask first before yes. you help somebody else or otherwise you're both going to pass out. Um, so the, I would sum it up to say those three things, you know, to, to be able to recognize it, to get help and then to take care of yourself. Yes. And it's, it's funny that you say that because um, about the airplane, because it's also like you start thinking it, it like we know this intellectually, we know all this, but applying that when you're going through a rough time, it, it's another thing. And it's like, it's like when they say you cannot pour from an empty cup or yeah, an empty exactly. you know, jar. <laughs> going back to what you said, I had another guest that um, lost her husband. And that's mm -hmm. a different grief, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, because um, do you think that it's because people are going to forget um, their loved ones uh, when they pass, if we move on? And she said, there's no way that you can, that you can forget them. And, and, it's, and it's what you said, that you mm -hmm. felt like you were going to forget what, what, if you moved on. And it's true. There's no way. Like, we move on. We learn how to deal with it. But you'll never forget. How does our physical health, because you went over that a little, affect our mind, body, and uh, spirit? How are those connected? Yeah, that that's really gets into some interesting stuff because we think they're kind of separated. But one way that I think is easy to explain it is if you think about um, you're watching a movie, right? And you know it's not real. You know these are just actors. But if it's an intense scene and you're afraid, you know, your body will tense up, your heart will beat faster. You know, if it's a sad emotional thing, you'll start crying. You have a physical reaction in your body to the mental, even when you know they're not real, even when you know it's fake. And so that just shows you how closely our body and our minds and our emotions and everything are tied together. And it also works the other way. I don't know if you've seen or, or read this, but, you know, they say if you're in a situation and you want to feel confident that you stand confidently and right, then you'll feel that right. way. You, you stand the way a confident person would stand. Or even sometimes if you smile, even when you don't feel like it, you know, then you start to feel more happy. So there's this interaction between our physical and our mental and our emotion. They're all tied together and part of our, our nervous system. Connected. Right. Yeah. And I, um, just this past year, I learned that we actually have more neurons in our gut system than we do in our peripheral system or in our spinal system. 
only the brain has more neurons in it. So that's why they call our gut sometimes the second brain. You know, if you just say like, I have a gut feeling about this, or, you know, if you get butterflies in your stomach, you know, you're feeling nervous. There's a lot of like emotional and mental activity that goes on in the, in the area of our gut. And we don't usually think about that. Um, It's kind of weird sometimes to think about it that way, but there is this, this connection between, you know, what we eat, what we do with our body, how active we are, you know, and how our thinking goes and how that affects our emotions. And when we're not feeling well physically, that can um, lead to us not feeling well mentally, not feeling well emotionally. You know, if we're not feeling, if our mental health isn't on top of the game, then we don't take care of ourselves physically. I know when I was in the depths of depression, I really didn't care if I lived or died. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. care if I got sick or got injured. You know, I I was not taking care of myself because I didn't care. Um, You know, just the whole exhaustion thing. Like I mentioned that of, am I tired because I'm depressed or am I depressed because I'm exhausted or, (laughs) you know, I don't know, (laughs) but they're so interconnected and you can have, there's a lot of illnesses, especially chronic illnesses that are tied to depression, you know, and which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, we don't know, but there's something about the body chemistry going on there. And um, also like mental and emotional trauma, if you experience a traumatic event, that gets stored in your body very differently than normal memories. And that can lead to physical problems. You can have physical pain in an area that's not tied to an actual physical injury, but it's more tied to a mental emotional injury And that's the way your body's trying to cope with it. And so, I mean, it's just this whole fascinating thing. If I had it to do over again, I would study neuroscience. I think neuropsychology is just so fascinating. It is. But there's so many ways that they're connected. And the more I read about them, the more I study, the more ways I find these connections. And it's just fascinating. Do you study the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza? No, I haven't. I haven't heard that Uh, person. Search him up. He's he's Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I heard it from him or um, another author that I that I really enjoy. And there's also um, he was saying something about the heart has its own brain, mm-hmm. which I think yeah, is fascinating. I, I've realized, too, that, you know, it's not what happens to us in life as much as it's how we interpret what happens to us in life. Yeah. You can have two different people go through the same experience and interpret it very differently and Mm -hmm. therefore have very different results. Part of it is, do we process this happening in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way? You know, and then that ties into, you know, past traumas that we've had or examples that we have, or, you know, all these different things. And sometimes we get stuck in the mode of, you know, dealing with things in a certain way that's maybe in the long run, not, not beneficial to us. An example would be, I tend to just stuff it and move on. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sweep that under the rug. And that works for a little bit, but eventually all those things I stuffed are too much to contain and some little thing will happen and I just go, and it all comes out. (laughs) It would be better just to release those as, you know, individual little packets of emotional frustration, but no, I save it all up for one day (laughs) and then just launch it. (laughs) Like a missile. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My husband's like, well, that's not that big of a deal. You know, I think you're overreacting. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not just reacting to this. I'm reacting to the it's last 100 things that things. happened. <laughs> yeah. Hey. So that's, that's a habit that I have. I, I do it without even really thinking about it, even though I know it's not healthy. So, I, you know, there's just, there's always something that we can be working on all of us. 
Ah, uh, yes, for sure. And and that's why I love, you know, um having um conversations about all this stuff because even if you have um certain knowledge about something, there's always something that you're gonna learn. Mm-hmm. Um now let's talk about with all this depression and adversity, what is resilient and how can one build a resilient life? Mm-hmm. When you feel like you're drowning in all this, you know, like adversity is hitting you from every place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's felt like that for a lot of us for the last year and a half or so. Um, what resilience is, is really just the ability to bounce back, the ability to, to overcome an obstacle or a trial or to, it's not that you never get knocked down, but it's when you get knocked down, you can get back up again. None of us go through life and never get knocked down. That's just, it doesn't happen. Um, but it's that learning to pick yourself up and, and keep going and not um, say, oh, I'm a victim. Life is unfair. This bad thing happened and be stuck there for the rest of your life. Uh, because it's true. Life is not fair and bad things happen to all of us. And resilience is taking ownership for our part of that. There's a lot of things that we don't have control over but we do have control over how we react, how we respond to those things. So resilience is learning to take control and responsibility of that part. And so I teach in my things that there's five areas of resilience. And if we can work on growing all these five areas, then that builds resilience over time. Because I believe resilience or grit, some people call it, is not just, it's not like you're born with it or you're not. You know, some people may be more naturally have more grit than others, but, but it's a learned skill. It's a thing that you can learn. Um, and so that, you know, we can all be resilient if we just learn those skills and those ways of coping with things in healthy ways and processing them and going, you know, working through things rather than just letting them affect us and not, uh, you know, being fully aware of them. So the, I've already mentioned four of them, physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional. And then the fifth one that I've added is will. Because if you talk about your spirit, soul, and body, the soul is the mind, will, and emotions. So those three, and they all kind of cross over. Mind, will, and emotions, it's hard to draw distinct lines, you know, between those. Spirit is the part of us that interacts with God. Our body is the physical part that keeps us tied here to earth for a certain number of years. But the the soul, that mind, will, and emotions is kind of, yeah, you know, squishier it's like yeah <laughs> but it's it's you know our personality is what makes us us it's what we think but then what we think affects what we do and it affects how we feel about things and it affects the decisions that we make and you know then that affects other things you know it's it's just a, a continual process so um I have habits that I've tried to develop that I try to do every day or at least as often as possible where I'm deliberately trying to build my strength in those five areas. And um, there's so many ways to do. I mean, there, we could talk for hours and I could tell you all the things, but, but I wrote it actually in my second book, which is coming out later this year. It's called um, Undaunted, Your Battle Plan for Victorious Living. So I go through each chapter is one of these five things. And I tell you, you know, all the things that I try to do regularly to help cope with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have a chapter on depression and one on anxiety, because those are just the two things that I'm familiar with that I dealt with. And obviously I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not any kind of expert. I have a huge disclaimer in the book. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a dietitian. I'm not, I'm not anything. I'm just a fellow sufferer, you know, person in the trenches. And I'm like, Hey, these things have really helped me 
maybe they'll help you too, but go get professional help as well, because that's what I needed also to get healthy. Right. Well, you're, you're not the expert quote unquote, but your experience might help Mm -hmm. somebody dealing with the same, um, emotions, same, you know, issues and getting hand in hand with a doctor or a physician Mm -hmm. or a a mental health provider, you know, it's, it's always um, helpful. Yeah, exactly. I felt so alone sometimes as I was going through this struggle because, you know, I, I felt like people didn't understand my grief. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't sure what I was experiencing. And my my prayer has just been, I don't want other people to feel alone like that. I, mm-hmm. Whatever it is you're going through, you are not the only one. And I think when we get in that place of grief, we tend to feel like we're the only one, um, but we're not. And we're, we're always stronger together. So yeah. I just want to, to tell people, hey, you're not alone. You know, if you're struggling with this or that or you're questioning God or, or you're angry about what's happened to you or you can't move past whatever it is that happened, you know, you're not the only one. We all go through these things and there is hope. There's always hope. Even when you can't see a reason to hope, it's still there. Just like when it's cloudy and mm-hmm. you can't see the sun, we know the sun is shining above the clouds. It's still there. And that's how hope is. Hope is always there, even when we can't see it. Yes. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about your first book, Undefeated? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's called Undefeated, From Trial to Triumph. And basically, as I started getting healthier, I was keeping a journal in the morning as I was having my quiet time, my prayer time, and reading the Bible. And I would jot down notes that were significant to me. And um, my counselor at the time had told me, because I wasn't always depressed. Sometimes I was okay. And I couldn't remember why I was so depressed. And then other times I was depressed and I couldn't remember why I ever thought life was okay. So she told me, you know, when you're feeling okay, write to your depressed self. So that's what I started doing. Well, I was three quarters of the way through my journal and I realized, I think this is a book. (laughs) So, but it got to be too long. So I chopped it up into three books. So now I I don't know if a nonfiction trilogy is a thing or not, but I made one. So the first book is just kind of the, the background, kind of the worldview that I'm coming from that makes the second book make sense. The second book is kind mm. of more the nuts and the bolts. But my, my premise in the first book is that oftentimes we feel, unde- we feel defeated because we don't realize the nature of the battle that we're actually in, that there, there actually is a battle of good and evil forces in the world. And our battle is not with our circumstances. Our battle is not with other people. Um, we're actually all on the same side, but our, our battle is overcoming evil with good. And um, so I kind of just go through and talk about that, you know, who our enemy actually is. And we usually misidentify it and, you know, shoot at the wrong things or wrong people, so to speak. Um, talk about who God is and, and how he protects us, defends us, how he's always for us, even when it feels like he's not. And then I talk about our identity of who we are and what that means. And um, then I also have a section that is called Believe Anyway, but it's just, you know, I really struggled with questions and doubts and didn't know how to ask them because that felt blasphemous. It felt wrong to question God. Um, so I just go through a whole section on how to how to deal with that. And eventually I got to the place where I realized I don't actually want a God that I can understand. I want a God that I can trust even when I don't understand because any God that's small enough for me to understand isn't worthy of me worshiping him. And uh, I don't even understand myself a lot. <laughs> so, so I just, you know, I didn't get answers to all the questions I was seeking, but I learned how to just rest in that mystery and realize that that's part of what makes him so great. If I could understand him, he wouldn't be able to help me. 
it'd be too small. So, um, you know, I just kind of go through those things and kind of lay the groundwork for the second book. That is great that you, that you said that because I think that's uh, as a Christian, um, because that's what I, you know, believe in Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, I also had those feelings. Like I never, I've always felt like I was not part of any group. People invite me, I, I'll be there um, mm -hmm. because I love community. Uh, but I felt like I was never part of it. I just chose to believe. Mm. And, and uh, believing in something that you cannot see or touch, it's, um, I think is where a, a lot of us have a problem with. And mm -hmm. um, believing is a choice. What is your perception of beauty? What does beauty mean to you? Yeah, I, I have a couple of different answers for that. Um, you know, as as a mom with eight kids, I was pregnant or nursing or both for 14 years. <laughs> so, you know, and, and so I think in our culture, we get real caught up in body image and the external appearance. And, you know, for years, I didn't even try to like get in shape or anything because I'm like, you know, what's the point? It's just everything's all stretched out. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not going back to the way it was. Um, but then, you know, later as I was coming out of these things, I was working on physical health was one of the things I was working on, um, more to help me with the, um, mental health issues. Nice. Um, I found exercise to be very good for relieving anxiety. Um, and through that, you know, then my body started actually looking better, but I realized that's not the point. I, I don't want to look better. I want to feel better. Mm. And I realized that when I take care of my body, when I feel better, I can do more. I can do more with my family. I can participate with things. I can, I have the energy to go, you know, help other people to serve, to do the things God's called me to do. And so I think it's just a lie and a trap of our culture that we want to take care of our bodies. So they look a certain way because God made all of our bodies different on purpose. And that's yeah. a beautiful thing. We're not, whatever the standard is, which is always un unapproachable, you know, yeah. is not, <laughs> that's not what it's about. It's about taking care of the, we only get one body and when it's done, it's done. And so it's about taking care of being a good steward of what God's given us. because that's what ties us to this earth. You know, when the body goes, the spirit takes off. Right. <laughs> so I, I only have whatever time is left in this body. That is the only amount of time that I have to serve, to serve God and to serve other people on this earth. So I want to take care of it so that I can do those things. I want to be there for my children. I want to be able to participate in what they're doing. Um, so that's kind of where I am at now as far as physical um, appearance is not really about the outside. It's more about being fit of how we feel physically about ourselves. Um, so that's, that's one area. Another area that I would cover is a lot of times I get a comment along the lines of, Oh, you look great for having eight kids. And, and I know people mean well, but it kind of, what's the implied thing in that? You know, whenever somebody gives you a compliment and this says for a X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, it's always, it's like a barb. There's always kind of an underlying thing in there. So what are they saying? Having kids makes you unattractive. Is that, is that the underlying message? I mean, I don't think they're consciously trying to say right. that, but, and maybe, okay, I do, I do overthink everything. So. <laughs> But I, I just want to like yell at people and say, motherhood is beautiful. Yes. And it doesn't matter if I have spit up on my shoulder or I haven't showered in three days or, you know, my, my belly hangs to the floor. It, that's, 
not the point. <laughs> Motherhood is a beautiful thing. And I, I think to, to come at women like, oh, you've had a baby, your abs aren't flat, your boobs are saggy, you've got stretch marks, now you're not attractive, is ridiculous. Like, where did we get that idea? So um, I don't know, I, I want to take comments, you know, in the spirit they are intended. I think they're really just trying to be complimentary, but it still kind of digs at me a little. It's like, what do you mean for a mother? And why does that matter anyway? You know, I'd rather somebody say, you're kind or you're patient or you're intelligent or something else because what our physical appearance is is so superficial. That's not me. Right. So um, I, we had pet hermit crabs for a long time, but I kind of liken it to that, you know, a snail or a mollusk, they create their own shell. So the shell is actually a, a part of their body, but with a hermit crab, they're not, they're a separate animal and they go confiscate some shell that somebody's cast off like the snail dies and then the, the hermit crab goes and gets that empty shell and, and they swish out shells as they grow or just, you know, when they, they can change shells like clothes, you know? Really? I didn't so, know that. <laughs> yeah. So you look at the shell and you can go, oh, what a pretty shell. But that says nothing about the hermit crab inside. The hermit crab is a separate little creature in there. Nice. And so I feel like when we get tripped up by physical appearance and when we judge people based on how they look, we're looking at the shell, but we're missing the hermit crab. I, that may sound a little, that sounds goofy when I say that out loud, but <laughs> hopefully you're getting the metaphor. Yes. <laughs> being unapologetically you to me means being true to who you are, what you believe in, staying true to your core values. Is there anything that you um, are going to stop apologizing for or that you stopped apologizing for that took you to the next level in your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that was huge for me on this journey of just becoming an author. Um, I've always just from day one, I've been a people pleaser, you know, I'm all about making other people happy. And, and I, I, to the point where I can't even really separate out sometimes what I want from what I think somebody else wants. I can't right. tell what, what I actually want, <laughs> but, um, you know, on this journey of trying to become a writer and I, you know, I feel like I have a message to share, but you know, then that voice comes and says, well, who are you? to think that you can write a book, to think that you have anything that you can offer the world. And I know as I was working on that first book, there were so many days I was in tears and I'm like, who am I to write a book called Undefeated when I feel defeated so much of the time? And um, I just felt like God kind of whispered to me, that's why I want you to write it because you know how this feels. <laughs> right. And, um, wow. And then my, my first book was self-published and uh, I was at a writer's conference once and it was all about, you know, meet the literary agent and, you know, try to get traditionally published. And so I had this, you know, insecurity feeling, you know, whenever you're, we're doing something, you know, we get insecure about whatever our thing is that other people aren't even thinking about at all. But, right. <laughs> but I was feeling insecure that I was self-published, you know, that I hadn't been picked up by a traditional publisher. I hadn't even tried. I didn't want to go that route. Um, but during the worship time at the conference in that morning, you know, it was, again, it was just kind of that just little God whisper into my heart. He's like, you don't need anybody else's permission. Mm. I, I've told you to write this book. Go write the book. Go share the message. You don't need someone else to tell you it's okay for you to do that. You don't need somebody else to tell you, oh, you should write a book or you're good enough or whatever. He's like, I've, I've given you the message. Go share it and stop making excuses. And then um, the third thing that happened was, I was on like a webinar thing for, for the, the company that I wound up going with to help me publish the book. It was their little coaching webinar. And I had already listened to it once. And then I listened to a, like a replay of it. And the, the guy who was leading the webinar said something different that he hadn't said the first time. 
But he's like, if you have all these hangups and these fears about not getting out there and doing what you're supposed to do, he goes, that's just selfish. He's like, there are other people that need what you have. And if you're hanging back because you feel insecure, you're selfishly withholding things from them. And that was like, that was the smack in the face that I needed. And I, I emailed the guy later. He's like, I've never said that before. And if I felt a little strange saying it, I'm like, well, I think you said it just for me because that's what got me <laughs> off my butt to go, okay, I'm going to finish this book and I'm going to do this because it's true. When we put self-limiting things on ourselves and we play small, we're hurting other people. And yeah. so that's, for me, that's what being unapologetically me is, is to say, look, this is the message I have to share. I know it's going to help somebody. If, yes. if nobody else, it helps me. <laughs> yeah. And, and that I don't need somebody else's permission to do it. I, I just need to get out there and share what I have and just let my light shine and let it fall on who it may. And if it's, if this is not the message for other people, then fine. You know, I, I've had at least a couple of people read my book and kind of go, I just don't think that deeply about anything. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. Cause I do. <laughs> and there are other people <laughs> like me who do, but you know, if this is not your book, that's cool. You know? Right. So um, that has been huge for me to kind of just get over those mental hurdles to be able to, to do the thing, you know? And so for me, it's writing, uh, you know, but for, for other people, you know, it could be any number of things, whatever it is that you feel you should do, but you feel hanging back for some reason, there's probably some hang up there that, um, you know, you need to overcome. And I think that's what being unapologetically you is about. We've each been created uniquely and individually with stuff to offer to the world. And, and when we don't live that out, we're, we're hoarding it from the rest of the world. We're, we're not letting them give the unique gift of us, of whatever that is. And everybody, like I said, just with bodies, with physical, everybody's different. And yes. that's good. It's supposed to be that way. It's like if all the puzzle pieces in the puzzle were exactly the same, the puzzle wouldn't work together. The puzzle right. works because every piece is different. Wow. I read this book from Dr. Wayne Dyer that the excuses be gone. So mm -hmm. every time I'm trying to do something, it's like, Oh, that's an excuse. Okay, I'm putting an excuse here. Or yeah. we get caught up in that comparison trap. Oh, mm -hmm. I'm comparing myself with this yeah. person that has been doing this for longer than me. Uh, maybe I should look at it in a different way. Like, mm -hmm. what can I learn from her experience that I can apply to my experience? So I, it, it's, right. it's just a mindset shift that, that we need to um, change there, like mm -hmm. a little switch, you know, on and off. Okay, turn yeah. it on, turn it off. And <laughs> yeah. I, there's a quote that I love, and I don't know where it originated. I've heard it in several different places, and I wish I could claim credit for it, but I can't. But it's <laughs> don't, don't compare your outtakes to someone else's highlight reel. And yes. oh my goodness, I do that so much because I see all my mistakes and my flounderings and the things that I meant to do and didn't accomplish. But when I look at somebody else, I only see their polished thing that they're showing the world. Yeah. And so any comparison is ridiculous. It's false. It's <laughs> irrelevant, you know, because you're comparing apples and oranges. I'm yes. comparing my failures with somebody else's or what I perceive to be failures with someone else's successes. And that's, yes. that's not a fair fight. And when we compare, one of two things happen. Either we feel superior to them, you know, we feel better and we look down, or we feel inferior and, you know, we kind of shrink a little bit. And neither one of those is right. Because just like we said, you know, that person's doing their thing and you do your thing and the world needs both those things. <laughs> so there's room for everybody to, to be doing their thing. We're all supposed to be doing it. I was at the seminar with Tony Robbins and um, Dean Graziosi, and they had um, 
a guest speaker. He said the gift that we don't use, they find life with someone else. Mm. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is so true. Yeah. Because in many cases, I've been thinking about, okay, I should, I should do this and let me do this and I'm going to do it this way. And then I just put it in the back burner. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I see somebody else doing it. And I'm like, what? Should have done it like 10 (laughs) years. Stole my idea. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. God put it in his head because I didn't use it. So, (laughs) yeah. yeah. I had a a pastor explain once about, you know, the gifts that God gives us. It's like, think about if you give a gift to somebody, you want to see them using it. Right. Right. If they just stuck it in the closet and said, eh. That would hurt your feelings. And that's that's how God feels towards us. He gives us things because he wants us to use them. He knows the and he's the perfect gift giver. You know, even if we're kind of like, eh, that's not really what I wanted, God. He knows it's it's actually what we need. But uh he intends us to get out there and use those things and not stuff them in a closet or not hide them. Right. I can talk to you forever. There's so much to learn from you. Where can people um uh, find out more about you? My website is just my name, elizabethmyers.me, and that's kind of the hub for everything I do. I have blog posts there. It can connect you to, to products that I have or my own um, podcast that just came out this last year. is called Resilient Life Hacks, um, so there's a link to that on there as well, and I have some freebie downloads um, to offer if you're interested um, that you can sign up for as well on there. Thank you so much for being my guest today and sharing all your knowledge with the audience. A lot of women are going to find your message uh, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your gift with, with the world. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed talking to you as well. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell us what you think on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Mayi Lens and on Facebook page Conversations with Mayi Lens. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. Until next time, talk to you soon.